Hello and welcome to the Holistic Kitchen Podcast. My name is Chef Kim Redeen and I am your host for this week's episode. Yes, and this episode I am talking about Nourish Cafe and Market, the cafe that I co-owned with Kaylee Lamone and created with my vision. She approached me as the chef with my cookbooks, my catering business, all my experience and knowledge to create this vision with all the guidelines that I follow, being free of gluten, soy, corn, refined sugars, peanuts, pork, and hydrogenated oils, and of course, any sort of ingredient that's gonna be toxic to our bodies as a whole community. I don't do dairy, but dairy is something that people eat that is healing in different ways. Not usually, I would say most commonly, dairy is causing inflammation and some disease in people, but there are people that are not intolerant to the proteins or the sugars found in dairy and they can consume it. So we would use local creameries for our milk like Ozark Mountain Creamery. Our dairy was from Hem Brothers, which I love them, been on many tours at their farm, they're great. And then we use goat milk, feta, and soft goat cheese, which isn't technically dairy, but it is another animal-based milk that we use, so just that cheese. So getting to be all of those things, of course, as the chef, I had to be able to try all the creations, the recipes. I did the majority of the recipes. Kaylee helped with some of the recipes as well, mostly drink recipes. And we created this beautiful vision of Nourish Cafe and Market. Our mission statement was always made from scratch, organic, local, being able to be compostable, whether it be to-go items or our food and ingredients. So just making sure that we were the highest quality restaurant in the world. I know for a fact in America, but most likely top five in the world for the healthiest restaurant you could be at, especially not using things like cane sugars and hydrogenated oils, because as a restaurant, there are a lot of ways to cut corners and use these ingredients that are very inflammatory and very unhealthy for us to save money. And I understand that as a business owner and entrepreneur, there is a very fine line of being the highest quality and are people going to pay for this for the price? So it just, can they afford it? It's not even do they want to sometimes, it's can they? So it was really fun creating this vision and I am so proud of it. I did walk away from Nourish December 31st, 2022. So I've been gone a couple months now. I have created now a catering business again. Well, I've just stuck with Happy Foods, but kind of updated it, which I will go into in probably the next episode or two. But today it's all about Nourish. I'm so proud of the seven and a half years that Kaylee spent, Kaylee and I spent working on this and the six and a half years of being open while I was there. And they still use recipes from my baking cookbook and the recipes I created, they have changed some things and added pork and such. So if you do go back, make sure that you ask about these things. If you follow me or have been coming for years to let me cook for you, I love you all. My favorite thing was cooking for you all, getting to see your faces light up, whether it be because you've never been able to eat foods like this because of your restrictions or the fact that you just thought it was bomb. My pancakes were the best pancakes in Colombia, I was told multiple times. And that is not because they're vegan and gluten-free. People just thought they were fluffy. They tasted good. They were filling for the money. And that was such a joy for me. I, I'm so grateful for the memories I've made getting to cook for you all. So just talking more about 
things that nourish from a business perspective. I really want to get to all the chefs out there or all the entrepreneurs or upcoming cooks that want to open something that is to the scale of from scratch. When we say from scratch, I mean, I've worked in hotels, coffee shops, high grade restaurants, country clubs, and from scratch is not a defined term in the food industry. So when we say from scratch, literally making our own sauces, boiling our beans from our hummuses, doing every little thing that we needed to do to make it so it was the healthiest and most nutrient dense possible for you. Which again, I'm just so proud of what we created and the systems I created, the recipes, how it all worked together to save the food cost where we needed to. It was just such a cool experience. I learned so much. I have so much knowledge from this. I do plan to open another maybe restaurant, maybe food truck in the future. I haven't decided just because I love cooking for you all so much. My dream is to open one with one of my daughters. So once they get a little older, I get this time with them at home and get to enjoy it more. But one day in the future, I will be back on the streets cooking for you all and having a great time. Until then, let's talk about just the different products we had. So starting with smoothies, the frozen fruit. You know, there were no bags of frozen organic bananas when we opened. We were doing 40 to 80 pounds of bananas a week, cutting, peeling, slicing, freezing on a tray flat so they weren't stunk to, stuck together in a clump. And then once they were frozen, we'd have to unwrap them, put them in a Canberra, which is just a plastic container with a lid, and then have them ready for smoothies. I mean, that is just one step for our smoothies, people. Not to mention, you know, making our almond milks. We had dozens of add-ins and thinking of the counter space of where we're going to put these add-ins. Are they going to fit the scoops that we need to make sure all the recipes have the same scoops for the same ingredients. So if we're using something like almond butter, we have the same size scoop for each recipe and we write the recipes based off that per system. Is it double that scoop? Is it triple? Is it one scoop? Is it half a scoop? So thinking of these little tiny things is just so important. It's so much fun for me to share this stuff with you guys. We also wanted to use metal straws for customers drinking the smoothies in-house. You know, how is that going to be feasible for a dishwasher to clean straws? You have to literally scrub the inside of each straw. So that was up to actually front of house to do that. They would be the ones that would clean it with the bristle brush either before or after it went through the dishwasher and then clean it again, depending on how stuck it was in there, if it was soaking or not. Just thinking about that, we don't just have disposable straws like most places. And then speaking of disposable straws, the compostable ones, I mean, we got paper ones in at one point that they were too thin. And then there was paper ones that were really thick, but they melted in the smoothies. So if you were giving it to somebody like Grubhub or, you know, Mr. Delivery, where it's getting delivered, if we put the straw in, it would melt. So we would have to just leave it on the side and hope it didn't get bent or crushed. These are just such little things for a company like this to think about. And then that's just some of the things well I would say you know the majority of things for the smoothies how many things can you fit in your freezers in your smoothie space that you have up front to how many fruits can you fit and how many smoothies can you make off of those fruits that you can fit things like that and then thinking about juices we did cold press juices we started out with such a small juicer it was such a joke we would have to fold up this cloth it took hours eight hours to make like two dozen juices. It was a joke. We did not realize the labor intensity of the cold press juices if you did not have a $15,000 juicer. 
lo and behold, towards the end, we did get that $15,000 juicer and we would pump out juice like nobody's business. So knowing your equipment is really important by what you choose. And then we started out with plastic juice bottles. That's what we thought we could afford. And they were compostable, I believe, maybe plastic. I'd have to double check if those were compostable. I don't think they were. They were recyclable at least. But then we went to glass because we just knew it was so bad for the earth and it, it went against our sustainability practices. But it took a while because when we opened, there were not a lot of brands out. Like I said, there weren't even slice frozen bananas, you know. So we had to start this and really figure it out and wait for brands to come out, wait for vendors to come out. And our juice bottles at the end were actually ketchup bottles. And then you have to decide. Are we going to get our labels printed out on these bottles or do we just do stickers? And are we going to pay for the really expensive stickers or are we going to wait to see if it sells and just use, you know, our own printed out stickers from that are made in-house? So just knowing that, you know, figuring out what the customer likes was really important. We actually started out with four juices and we have our True Green Immunity and Glow. Those are the three staples, but we had one called Cleanse and it just never sold. It was hard to keep it up on the shelves. So knowing that you have too many juices, it's going to cause a lot of waste. And how long do those products usually last? I would say three to five days for juice. It's not going to last very long if it's not pasteurized. So all the things you have to think about, plus the extra labor for that extra flavor may not be worth it for you. And then we would have also our hot drinks and cold drinks up front. So, you know, the cold drinks, we had a pink lemonade, which had cold pressed beet juice in it. And knowing that we always needed to make sure we had enough of that up front. We needed to make sure we were communicating to our juicer in enough time so that they would have it before we ran out. That, that could be six days of lead time of figuring out when we would need it by telling them so it was the freshest it could be. And then with the hot drinks, we started out with this little baby espresso machine because we didn't want to take up a lot of counter space because counter space was limited with all the really high intensity, labor intensive ingredients and recipes we did. And our almond milk that we made in-house just did not froth well. And neither did the oat milk that we bought from Malk once it finally came out. Gosh, that was like four or five years after we opened, maybe even six. Um, and they just didn't really froth very well. And the cow's milk did, but we didn't get a ton of customers that were coming for cow's milk lattes. If they did, you know, it was totally fine. It just was probably like 10 to 20% of our latte demographic in the beginning and so it was a bummer when people would offer or ask for vegan cappuccinos it's like well this milk doesn't froth so it's not going to be half foam half milk we can definitely pull the shots and heat up the milk so once that happened that we decided to get a bigger espresso machine because our lattes had gotten so popular because we did things like adaptogen lattes turmeric lattes with local local grown organic turmeric paste with local honey um, matcha lattes, things like that that didn't have the espresso in them. And even our espresso drinks were really popular. We made our chai syrup for lattes, our own, you know, chocolate mix for our mocha. So it wasn't that pump syrup that's just full of sugars and fake ingredients. We got a big espresso machine with two wands on it. And what a difference that made. Our almond milk all of a sudden have the tightest foam you have ever seen. So really making sure you have the right equipment and paying attention to that with these ingredients that don't have gums that are gonna fluff up that foam more, which we never use. So just little things like that to think about. We also did soups. 
we had the paleo beef chili, which that recipe came out of my cookbook. We just substituted the beans for different squashes to make it paleo. And that was year round. Our paleo people really enjoyed that. We actually ended up putting it on top of a breakfast bowl. So sweet potatoes, our paleo chili with eggs for those paleo people that wanted breakfast. Really, really popular. Um, so that was just a no brainer. Keep that on the menu year round. And then we had a vegan seasonal soup that we would rotate and I would just throw together recipes. So I made a cream of mushroom one time. One time I made the cream for the cream of mushroom out of lion's mane, the cheese. Just so it was just a play on the cream of mushroom that the cream was then made out of lion's mane. I just, I love doing really cool things like that with ingredients and anything left over. Like I said, I would just turn it into a soup and you can always blend, make a bisque, throw in some cashew ricotta or whatever it is you use for your vegan cheese and turn it into a soup. But I got to do tons of fun things, Asian soups, different kinds of curries. I did vegan chilies, pumpkin vegan chilies, and it was just so much fun for me. Broccoli cheddar, tomato bisque. So whenever we just had an abundance of something, or if a farmer came in and just was trying to peddle something off at the end of the day after a farmer's market, you know, 20 pounds of tomatoes, it's like, great, yeah, the next soup will have tomatoes then. Or if we threw something in the freezer that was from a special or it was starting to turn and we didn't want to lose it and have it go bad, we'd freeze, you know, bags of carrots or potatoes. And I would literally just go in the freezer and grab bags when we were getting low with our seasonal soup, let them defrost and just create something. And it, it was just so much fun. It was so creative for me. And I just, I love thinking of different things for everyone. <clears throat> with the soups, you have to think of holding gluten-free noodles. That's not easy. They usually end up disintegrating and turning into just shreds in your soup. So we never really did a lot of chicken noodle soups or, well, it was vegan. So any sort of minestrone, something like that with the noodles because it wouldn't last. And then thinking about soups that would separate or if they were in the soup warmers for a long time, how they would reduce and get, you know, then too salty or too flavorful. So paying attention if you needed to add more stock or I usually made them a little bit thinner because we'd be reheating them and then putting them in the soup warmer for the day. So they would be cooking and reducing more. So just thinking about all those little things when you're making the foods that are going to be served to hold at a restaurant. From there, sauces, hummuses, salad dressings, we made all of our sauces, whatever it was, pestos, you know. So just thinking about how long those lasted. For us, it was freezer space. We had to make very large batches and then freeze them because they didn't have preservatives. I remember opening Nourish and, you know, we had everything in the walk-in cooler because we just didn't know how long anything was going to last. And very quickly, I, I, of course, paid attention very closely because this was food cost and a lot of labor and a lot of love put into this food. And the second it would start to mold, it's like, okay, well, the tuna salad, that can last, you know, two weeks in the walk-in before it goes bad or the hummuses can last four weeks in the walk-in before they go bad so just really paying attention and then I finally said you know we just need to start freezing everything and seeing what happens and all of our sauces and dressings they would freeze for four or six months without getting freezer burn still tasting great and holding their texture once they defrosted and then also thinking about how many batches you can make with the equipment you use so we had a commercial Vitamix, but we would have to sometimes do two or three batches, blending the wet ingredients and dumping them into our huge, you know, 40 quart stand mixer so that we could be blending it with the whisk, with the seasonings, the dry ingredients, whatever it may be. 
just so we can make a big enough batch at once and we weren't wasting time washing the dishes more often because we were making the batches more often. So just thinking about that with labor, equipment, and what you have in your kitchen. And meats we used. We had local meats. Um, how we stored them, of course, the freezer when they came in, chicken, tuna was canned, beef was frozen, any sort of seafood that we used would be frozen. And then just thinking about once it's cooked, you know, how much do you cook at a time so that it doesn't go to waste? How much are you pulling? How long can it last? So our chicken, we would roast it and slice it to be cooked on the line as a topping for bowls if people wanted to add chicken because all of our bowls and salads were vegetarian or vegan. We always gave the option to add meat. We wanted to make sure everyone was included in the meals that we were making and that there was always a choice for your dietary restriction. So then we would take the chicken and if it, you know, two, three days of not being used but being refrigerated, we would then turn it into chicken salad and add a ton of lime juice and my cilantro lime hummus recipe out of my cookbook. We used a lot of that and that lime, that acid would hold it longer. So just taking that ingredient and giving it a longer shelf life without adding fake preservatives. So acids are really great for that. But then we actually squeezed all of our acids, our lime, lemon, and orange juice from scratch because when we opened, we couldn't find any pre-made that didn't have a preservative like citric acid or something like that. So yeah, it's just thinking about all of those things and how we would use them and not waste them. Uh, the meals, you know, everybody wanted fast casual. So bowls, salads, breakfast, sandwiches, wraps. They wanted it fast. They wanted it to be like fast food, but they wanted it to be the highest quality, labor intensive, delicious, nutrient dense meal they had ever had, which made me laugh at first, you know, because we were kind of learning what are we? Do we sit down? Do people sit down and eat? Do they stay a while? Are they going to drink? Are they going to just try and come and go? And the customers that really made Nourish were those fast casual ones. Of course, we had like, you know, families, groups, business meetings that would stay longer, but a lot of people were come and go because it was just like, I'm, I have a very busy life. I'm super healthy. I go to the gym. I have a job. I have a family, but this is how I want to eat when I'm busy. So I'm coming in, trusting that you guys are doing exactly what you say you're doing and I'm going to get my bowl. So staying true to that was really important to me and figuring out how to do that was really important. So things like broccoli and carrots, you know, that we cooked on the line in bowls, we steamed them first so that when we reheated them, it only took a couple minutes versus if you're cooking them on a flat top from raw, it's going to take a really long time to cook through that vegetable. And that's going to make customers wait longer and that's not going to make them happy. So really thinking about how can we make every little thing faster, but still keeping that quality that we are really proud of. And then the produce, you know, thinking of all that labor breakdown time, we went through hundreds of pounds of broccoli, sweet potatoes, kale, apples, beets. Nah, I wouldn't, I'm talking like a week. Beets probably weren't 100 pounds a week, but just so many vegetables. And we couldn't afford, well, they didn't have them when we opened, but pre-cut organic vegetables. But then when they finally got those in, it just wasn't worth it to, it was cheaper for us to have the labor than it was to buy them pre-cut. Plus when you bought them pre-cut, half the time they ran out because they were such a new product. We didn't want to rely on that. We wanted something that was reliable, easy. So teaching people, you know, those nice skills and 
literally having people stand at a table for the whole shift, like an eight hour shift, you know, we always clean before and after and set up and stuff. So you're talking like six to seven hours of an employee standing at a table and just cutting the same vegetable, just quarts. Like when I say quarts, I'm talking 22 quart containers, like some days, like six at a time. You know, that's a lot of kale. That's a lot of sweet potatoes, but that's how much you people love us. And I just love you all for it. And I could cut so many sweet potatoes for you all. I got calluses and blisters on my thumb when we first opened because we were just cutting so much stuff, just trying to figure out what our community, our customers wanted to eat because it wasn't about us. It was about seeing what sold, seeing what you guys like, what was the demand and following that and letting our ego go of what didn't sell, even if that was our favorite thing and we loved it, just letting that go and following what the customer was really finding helpful, useful, and delicious. So doing a lot of that, using local farmers versus trucks. I mean, trucks were all over the place, especially in the pandemic. Half the time they would have the produce, half the time they wouldn't. Local, so much more reliable, so much easier to talk to and work with. You do find out quickly how much our farmers go through with things like droughts or floods or cold seasons. You know, it snows here in Missouri. And so hearing years when farmers were like, well, we lost a whole crop. I just, I have so much love for these farmers and what they do and how much effort they put in and the quality of their product. I mean, you could just tell the difference when we got it locally, whatever it was produce wise versus the truck. And there was a different energy. It was you know, crispier, it was brighter, it was lighter, it was just amazing. So really love using local farmers. We used over 30 local farmers. I love those people to this day. I think they, them, the customers, the employees that really, you know, were amazing. Those were the people that made me stick through for so long with two babies, you know, a miscarriage, pandemic. I definitely stayed around for the relationships. I really loved everybody. And then just like convenience and price when it comes to farmers, they can barter if they want to, they don't have to, but if you're getting, you know, 40 pounds of kale a week, it does give them a little incentive to maybe come down a little bit per pound if you can. So just knowing that if you are a business person, you can't do that with big commercial companies. And if you do, there's usually paperwork going through corporate, a bunch of nonsense by the time that you get to it, that season's over and that product's not even around anymore. So local is always great. And then when it comes to our baked goods and desserts, we try to keep a lot of stuff vegan just because it's easier that way with our clientele. Because if you're vegan, you care. If you're not vegan, you don't care if it's vegan. So it just hit more customers and the demand there. You know, seasonally, I had so many seasonal things I did. I loved seasonal baking, whether it's lemon bars and berry tarts in the springtime to chocolate logs and pumpkin logs during the holidays or you know our red white my red white and blue cookies that I am making still with my catering company for the holidays that it just it was so much fun for me um, we did have a smaller cooler so space was limited and I have a big heart for dessert so I could open a bakery and just be so happy with that I do love creating really healthy desserts. So making sure that I was aware again with my ego of what I enjoyed making and what was selling because of the limited cooler space. So keeping it seasonal really helped us rotate things and create a demand that, hey, get in here now. 
before it, it's gone. So just something to think about with that. And then making the pastries without preservatives. We had to freeze a lot of things again and just play with that and see how long things would last. Um, we baked our bread daily. My recipe had a happy food cookbook. That was our staple bread. And I absolutely loved making bread every day. That was something I was really proud of at Nourish because not a lot of restaurants will do that. Obviously, bakeries will. And it's a really big thing around here to buy local bread if you own a restaurant or if it's like a smaller restaurant or small owned business. That's what they do. And I applaud that and appreciate that. But making it in-house was just something I really loved. I love the smell that it created. I love that people got to see the bread come out and they really knew it was one more thing. We were paying that much detail too. So we even used local eggs, local brown rice flour that was organic. I mean, the bread was pretty special. I think everything at Nourish was pretty special if you can't tell, but I really, really love that aspect that we went all out and we did that as well. The market items, and when I say market items, I mean our retail shelves. That was another thing. When we opened Nourish, I told Kaylee I wanted Nourish to be one for everybody. I didn't want to be one diet. I know that I don't have a lot of ingredients in my diet, it seems, when you look at my list, but those aren't really specific to most people's diets. It is kind of to paleo the most, I would say, but it leaves a lot of ingredients and, you know, paleo, keto, vegan, gluten-free, all of these things can be used in the ingredients and recipes that I have. So I wanted to make sure that was really clear. I know Kaylee wanted to do paleo at one point and we sat with it and I'm just really glad that we decided not to do that. We decided to make it so everybody could eat with any dietary restriction, which I just think was smart as a business as well, because we weren't saying, oh, you're bad for eating this way because you don't do what we do. It was more just, how can we serve you and how can we feed you? And how can we make you feel good and it tastes delicious? And then with that being said, just the market items also, I wanted to have things that would help with labor and food costs because I knew what we were undertaking was going to be a huge, huge undertaking. And so it, it was the hardest restaurant I've ever worked at and I've worked for quite a few, but it was the most fulfilling and it, I had so much pride in it all. But with the market items, we were able to, you know, sell wine and beer and protein powders and different supplements and vitamins. And, you know, we had metal straws. We had my cookbooks. We had different nourish hats and water bottles and shirts. And that just kind of helped inflate the sales for our labor mostly. And the food cost was always a challenge, but it did get a little bit easier when different organic products started coming out throughout the years after opening. So just something to think about if you're going to open something like this, thinking about the easier ways that you're not working so hard for your product. It's nice to have something help you out so it's not hours for dollars. You can actually be selling something in your sleep, not technically with a restaurant, but you know what I mean. It's something where they can just pick it up and all you had to do was put a price tag on it and put it on the shelf. So I really loved our market. And again, all products with the highest quality. Kaylee did a really good job third-party checking all of those things or fourth-party checking all of those things to make sure that we were staying true to what we told you with our mission statement.
our compost was really cool. So composting was a really big deal to us. We had all to go, or we have, she probably still has all the to go composting utensils, napkins, bowls, smoothie cups, straws, things like that. And that was interesting in the beginning, finding the right sizes for desserts for different packaging, the right bowls, like our first, our bowls, uh, it had a clear lid on top and a brown bottom and it did not stay shut. And I remember one time a woman walked out with chili in one and didn't even make it a block down the road and it exploded all over her, got her light covered jeans completely turned red and stained. She was on her way back to work and we comped it all. We felt so bad. We made her something else. And I just remember feeling terrible for that person in our bag, our brown bag broke on her. That was our to-go bag. So just paying attention to that after that, we really knew the structure of the compostable bowls had to be better. And even like the smoothie cup lids, our, our salad bowls, oh my gosh, because they were compostable. They were, they could be near a window with sun. They could be in the car with sun on the window or in our kitchen and they would melt and warp. And we lost hundreds of those. So, you know, just because we wanted to be high standard, nothing was easier. Everything was harder, but it made it so much more worth it because we cared. And again, new brands and vendors came out. So it got way better towards the end before I left and everything was great. But in the beginning, oh, compostable was kind of a mess. And we really learned the hard way with that. But I'm really still so glad we were on the forefront of all of these things. We first started composting with CCUA, Columbia Center for Urban Agriculture. They were great and then they had to stop. And so I continued to compost at our family farm up in Higby. My grandpa, our grandpa helped us a lot, my husband and I, and we would take the compost up once a week to their farm, feed the donkeys, put it out in the pasture. And it was just one way to give back to the earth because the city told us if they we wanted them to compost, we had to pay them weekly. And it was an absurd amount. Plus then we would be using more plastic, more trash bags, and or they said, you can just throw it away. Which just blew my mind. It just shows you the lack of concern for the earth, regenerative agriculture, composting with the government. I mean, CCUA told us we probably had the best compost that they were given because it was all organic and local and all of these things. So just think of how the soil was regenerating with the compost they were creating and giving to other neighbors that were using it in their garden beds that were they were building them. It just, yeah, it's just something people need to be really aware about and just take, you know, I, I don't like to preach a lot. I know I have a podcast now and I hope I don't ever sound preachy, but I do like to lead by example. I'm one of those people where actions speak louder than words. And I have thought that and believed in that since I got clean, that you can preach and talk a lot. But to me, being a leader, showing your actions, you doing it yourself so that you can be a role model for others is so important. So that's why we did all of these things. I just was not going to give up my convictions because it was easier and that's never going to be something I do if you know me. Something else to think about is labor and I'm not going to get too much into labor right now but it is something that with such a intensive recipe creating product creating restaurant you have to think about as the owner and as the chef and general manager 
the person in charge of labor. I mean, like how many employees did we want to manage? How many people did I want under me? I, I'm, I don't like a lot of conflict. So not a lot in my mind. We ended up having around over 20 most of the time during the winter. It could be closer to like 15, 18, but we did have a lot of employees most of the time. Um, how much labor for all the products you were making, you know, that's a really big deal. We were never standing around. We were constantly making milks, making recipes, cooking, doing something, cleaning, whatever it may be. And how, how does all the products and different tasks that your employees have, because we were more labor intensive, how does that affect the training time per employee? That's such a important thing for you to think about if you own a restaurant training time. Do you have systems in set? Do you have paperwork? Do you have videos? You know, I, when I train new people, if it was back house kitchen, it was at least two months. If it was front of house, at least two weeks and a few days for front of house standing with them without leaving their side. And with back house, at least two weeks of cooking with them without leaving their side. I mean, just standing there with them, which being patient with that, knowing how to communicate, that takes a lot of energy. So just thinking about how that affects your day-to-day, -day, is it sustainable? And then for us personally, allergy knowledge for the menu was a really big deal. For the cooks, it was so they didn't cross-contaminate and get somebody sick. For the front of house, it was all the customer questions that we had. These are just so many things you have to think about that are going to take your time that are gonna create the business you want, but how are you gonna make it sustainable? How are you gonna make it effective? How are you gonna train people and make them as passionate as you? And then we decided to do counter service so that we had less labor actually serving the tables as waitresses, so coming out and taking their orders. People would walk up, take their order, we'd bring them water, we'd bring their food, we'd bust their table, but it was a line so that once they were ready to order, they ordered, they sat down, and we moved on with the process. So it was a lot quicker, a lot more casual, which I just love that. Like I said, that's just what it kind of grew into, and we just kind of followed what Nourish took on after it opened. And then some products that didn't sell. These are just kind of fun to share. We were all over the place in the beginning. Oh, my gosh. We had so many ideas, so many things we wanted to do, things like uh, a burger. <laughs> we had burgers that we had in cauliflower wraps cauliflower wrap always got complaints the burgers it was impossible to train as many employees as we had in that kitchen how to cook a burger it's really hard to train employees how to just do all the eggs over easy over medium over hard sunny side up poached scrambled so thinking of just burgers you know like medium well done rare whatever it may be was a nightmare so we ended up taking all of these things off the mac and cheese uh, I have an avocado mac and cheese bowl from Happy Food Cookbook. It was a fan favorite. People still to this day ask me about that mac and cheese, but sometimes people will get it as soup. Sometimes the noodles would be disintegrated. Sometimes it would be really thick. So the consistency was just too hard to keep. And then the burrito bowl, the ingredients on it, the bell peppers, the black beans, the cauliflower rice were only on that bowl. So it really caused havoc for us. And the cauliflower rice would go bad so quickly. It would smell like farts. It would stink up the whole kitchen. So that went pretty quickly as well. You know, things like overnight oats. That, you know, was like a huge thing on Pinterest and like everywhere in the health food world. But nobody wanted to buy them at Nourish. <laughs> it didn't matter the flavor. We tried multiple times. 
uh, too many juices and nut milks. We had the extra juice I told you about. And then we actually had a couple milks. We had a matcha milk. We had a raw cacao, cashew milk, and the anti-inflammatory milk was the best seller. So we just kept that one and it was the best decision ever. Way less waste, way less time with labor. Um, cooler meals like salads and bowls never really sold unless there were things like True False Film Fest or any sort of event downtown, a big athletic event, something. But we had to be really on top of that and prepared. Same with like hummus trays in the cooler. So our hummus with different vegetables didn't always sell. That just wasn't our clientele. I think those people were buying things at supermarkets if they were wanting things or just different kinds of restaurants. So this is my overall view and just giving you guys my knowledge of all the little things that helped create what Nourish was. Of course, there were things like catering I can go into and events, which might just be another fun episode. This was a lot, a lot, a lot. And like I said, there are so many things about Nourish that were so cool. And this was kind of the systematic things that I really thought about to get us in our niche, keep us really tight with our numbers, and also give our customers the best service and food possible. Um, and I plan to go into systematic details, you know, more of the managerial side. So stay tuned. There's lots of ones I'm going to do about Nourish in the future. I just felt compelled to get on here and just talk about how Nourish was really created systematically with my knowledge and experience and just how I wanted to have the yoga philosophy of treating people the way I want to be treated, being sustainable with our mental and physical health, and yeah, just creating a really awesome business. So if you like this podcast, please like it and share it with your friends. I really love doing this. So the more you share it, the more I get to do this. You can follow me on my website, chefkimberdean.com, happinessdrinkco.com. I'm on Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest, all as Chef Kimberdean. And then you can find me on Instagram as Chef Yogini Kimberdean. So thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Please leave any comments of future episodes you want to hear. And don't forget to nourish from the inside out. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or any other professional advice or services. If you are looking for help on your journey, please seek out a qualified medical practitioner.